You're listening to the GP Supervisors Australia podcast, Workers' Compensation, a general practice approach, presented by Dr Craig Barnett. We would like to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which this recording was produced and pay our respects to their elders past, present, future and their families. Welcome. It is a great pleasure to welcome Craig along tonight. Craig's a local GP here in Newcastle and has done some teaching into the GP training program locally over many, many years. Craig Barnett is a solo GP at Healthy One Medical in Carrington, which is a suburb here in Newcastle. He spends about a third of his time in routine general practice, a third in injury management and workers' compensation, and a third in compliance medical assessments for such organisations as coal miners, heavy vehicle and train drivers, and employees with exposures to hazardous substances like lead, chromium or asbestos. Those are the things I'm very unfamiliar with Craig does every day. Passionate about managing workers' compensation claims, well, contributed to the Improve Research Project with Monash University on the management of workplace psychological injuries, which is such an important area that he'll address tonight. Works collaboratively with a range of employer organisations and fellow health professionals to optimise outcomes. And I think he'll be focusing very much on the multidisciplinary nature of effective care in this space. His additional interests, computerisation of medical systems, including the My Health Record, and gardening, skateboarding, and hanging out with his family, which is fabulous. Great to have you along, Craig. Thanks, Simon, and uh, thank you for all those introductions. Just as a basic outline, where I'm hoping to take you is into some basics around the workers' compensation. And I want to try and give you a slightly different perspective of it. So I know for many doctors, it can be quite a challenging area and the machinations of the insurance industry and all the other players that are involved can sometimes be both frustrating and confusing and sometimes can be a little tricky to navigate. So I'm hoping I can give you a bit of insight so we're just going to, first of all, look towards the standard, I guess, organic or physical injury. Then we'll touch on the psychological one. And as far as I'm alluded to, in many respects, I would like about three hours for this, but we'll move through as promptly as we can and try and give you at least a, a touch on those key skills that will help yourself and the registrars get more insight into what goes on. Before I get down to some more specifics, look, just be aware that I'm in the state of New South Wales, so I'm fairly reasonably familiar with that system, but you need to just be very conscious that there's a number of different systems that operate within Australia. So even in New South Wales, there's special industries such as coal miners and police and some of the other emergency services people actually have different elements of legislation that cover their workers' compensation system. If you're employed by, say, the federal government, that comes under the Comcare legislation. And I believe that there's even a few of the national companies that uh, actually have access to that process as well. And think about your geographical location. Each state, your legislation will be slightly different. There are broad brushstrokes which tend to be the same. And so I'll be giving you the context in, in New South Wales. But please, whichever state you're in, whether that's South Australia, Victoria, Tasmania, wherever, look into what happens for your state because there's always people out there that are willing to help you. With that in mind, I've listed some people there. So if you find yourself stuck and you think something just doesn't make sense or I don't know why I'm being asked to do this, obviously your workers' compensation authority in whatever state you're in, there's usually fairly good websites. I must say that the most recent upgrades for the New South Wales websites have been absolutely spectacular. They're really easy to find things. 
talking to the case manager at the insurance office, the case manager is not always an enemy. And sometimes, particularly if they're a senior and experienced case manager, they can give you some insight into why they're making certain decisions or what the concerns are. Rehabilitation providers, occupational physicians, if you reach out to one of them, they're often very keen to share their in-depth knowledge and help give you an orientation if you find yourself a bit stuck. The Australian New Zealand Society of Occupational Medicine, which I'm, I'm a member of, has a website and they have a directory of people you can look up there. And obviously the Workers' Compensation Authority itself. And in New South Wales, there's actually an appeals ombudsman. There's an overseeing agency, which is called WIRO. And so if you think someone, if you think a patient's perhaps being poorly treated or there's a serious oversight in what's taking place, then WIRO is often a place you can go to to get that independent check on what's actually happening. Hopefully that's useful to you. I'm going to be a bit cynical here. Craig, isn't workers' compensation, surely, does it does it matter? You know, isn't it just a money thing? I think that's a very reasonable thing to put forward. And certainly it's not unfamiliar to hear that around the odd corridor here and there. And even employers are occasionally will turn around and say, oh, it's, it's all about the money. This guy's or girl's just taking it easy so that they can have a few days off. Can I turn that around? I want a whole audience to think about a completely different situation. So, Simon, you've come over. You know, we both live in Newcastle. I invite you over to maybe have a glass of wine and help me chop some wood for the fire. And you're a pretty obliging chap, so you come across and we're chopping wood. And next minute, a big piece of wood flies off and hits you in the eye and causes a penetrating injury to your eye. How am I going to feel about that? How will you feel about that? What will be the consequences for your family? If, for example, let's say the other eye was already a bit dodgy for whatever reason, and now it makes it difficult to do some of the medical education work or some of the on-screen work, how am I going to feel about that? I want to sort of drive that issue home. People often think of workers' compensation in the very immediate tense. But it's not. It's actually a human condition. The moment we have people working in groups, or in teams of some sort, even if that's in a voluntary team. If someone's injured, we do, unless we're a psychopath or something, we do have a sense of shared responsibility, a sense of concern for what took place. And so with that in mind, this is very much a human problem. It's not just about some law or legislation. And for those that are feeling a little more cynical and perhaps still doubting me, I ask you just perhaps on the corner of a sheet of paper, just write down how old do you think workers' compensation is? Do you think it's 100 years old, 200 years old, 500 years old? The earliest account of a workers' compensation system that we have is from 2000 BC. And that was in one of these Mesopotamian areas in Samaria under the king of Ur, you are. And forgive me because that's a history buff, I'll probably mispronounce that. There's actually a clay tablet that outlines if you get certain injuries, what sort of compensation process will take place to look after you if you were injured in the process of working for the king or working for an employer. And it's not an isolated case. The Arabs, the Greeks, the Chinese, the Romans all have examples of various workers' compensation systems. It's inherent in our wishes as a human culture to be engaged in groups that if someone in the group is injured in the conduct of helping one another, then there's some level of responsibility and some sort of addressing that. Whilst talking about history, and just very briefly, I think it's very important to understand just a little bit about some of our Western history. 
early in the Industrial Revolution, if you had an injury, it was very hard to get any compensation. In fact, compensation largely was not existent. And I don't just mean compensation in terms of perhaps some sort of payout. I mean even in terms of care or concern for your condition. And there were three elements of law back at that point in time, which were known as the trio of circumstances which prevented people from getting any sort of compensation or any support if they were injured. One was called contributory negligence. What that actually means is, let's just say I was responsible for bolting on a balustrade onto a building so that people didn't fall off and I perhaps hadn't finished securing it or something. I leaned on it and then I fell off and got an injury. You know, I might have broken my back. Then it was considered that I had contributed to the negligence. So there was no comeback on the employer or the safety circumstances. The other key one was known as the fellow servant rule. In this case, so maybe Simon and I were both working for a wood company and in the process, you know, a splinter's come off and hit Simon in the eye. In this earlier time, Simon could not go to the employer and say, look, I've gotten injured at work. I need some help with this. It would be deemed that a fellow servant, in other words, myself, had caused the injury and so I was the person responsible. And the third one is a thing known as assumption of risk. And in its most extreme form, it was known as the worker's right to die, which is fairly confronting when you think about it. But essentially what happened was people were paid additional allowance because the job was so dangerous. And then if something happened to you, well, we paid you extra. So did that come back to us about that? Those elements of law lasted for quite some time. And it's only in more recent decades, in the later part of the 19th century, that some of that's been revised. And now we have what we know as, as a completely different system. Let's fast forward right from Sumerian times to now. What's the current workers' compensation in Australia? What's the system look like? So we have it's controlled by law, or as the legal people refer to it as an act. And in New South Wales, the Act is published and it's very easy to hunt it down on the internet. I might also add the version in New South Wales, and I believe in most of the states, is incredibly simple, plain language. It's not old-fashioned legal language. It's been written in a simpler form as one could expect. There's an Act that covers what is to happen. The process and the funding of it comes from insurance premiums. So anyone that's running a business, offering because I run a very small business in terms of size and number of people, but I pay a workers' compensation premium every year. And that goes into the coffers, which is overseen by the state of New South Wales through a thing called iCare. And then if someone's injured, a claim is made upon those funds. So where's the funds go? They go to according to whatever the legal requirements are of the Act, but fundamentally they're to provide wage support to people that are injured, they're to provide treatment, which is deemed as being reasonable and necessary treatment, and they're to assist with a return to some meaningful employment. Doctors, we have a, a very pivotal role, and particularly in general practitioners, have a very pivotal role in this area. We become what's known as the nominated treating doctor if we agree to be involved in the process. And it's quite an important role. It's paid quite well because it's paid at sort of AMA-type rates, but it's not obligatory. Some doctors, they may feel that it's an area that doesn't appeal to them and you're not forced to do it. So if you do have a patient, say your patient comes in and they've got an injury to an ankle and you think, oh, look, I really don't want to get involved in this, then look, politely explain that to them. If you're in a large practice, there might be someone else in the practice that's happy to take it on or consulting any one of a number of other professionals around that might be interested in looking after it. You're not forced to do so. You, you can decline. 
The other thing which needs to be thought about in this context of what's the Australian workers' compensation system kind of look like. So we have a worker, that's the patient or the person that becomes injured. They've got an employer, so there's a relationship between those two. And they become quite central to the process or it's intended that they're quite central to the process. The nominating treating doctor has an important role in helping to treat the patient, but also into helping the patient return to some level of employment. There's other people we may call upon. So if there's an injury, we may want a physiotherapist. We may even need an orthopedic specialist or other health practitioners involved. And so the system does provide funding for that, providing it's considered reasonable and necessary. And there's a whole protocol around that the Act touches on and then various guidelines speak further about And someone you may not hear very much about, but which I want you to be aware exists because they're really, really important people. And if you can get to find a good one in your area, they're gold. Hang on to them, buy them lunch regularly. And that's a good rehabilitation provider. Rehabilitation providers, what the heck do they do? Oh, look, often they're about getting people back into the workplace but they've got a very, very broad reach. I always explain it to registrars when I have contact with them about it being like the uh, cement between all the bricks. They can talk to the employer, they can talk to the worker, they can talk to me, they can talk to the physio, they can talk to the insurer, and they can try to coordinate things and get some sort of an agreement about where we're going. If you've got a workers' compensation situation and you're thinking, oh, gee, I don't know what I'm going to do here. The employer says he has to use his right arm, otherwise he can't be at work. And, and you're getting pushback from someone else. And, you know, there's some problem because the insurer wasn't happy that the, the certificate wasn't filled out the right way. If you're getting this sort of chaos happening, get a rehabilitation provider. It's really helpful. And get them involved and listen to them, ask some questions. A good one's worth millions. We have the Workers' Compensation Commission. That's like an independent sort of legal arm that can actually make rulings on things. So if there's a bit of a spouse between perhaps the insurer and the worker's belief about what took place, that's how it gets resolved. Or if there's a serious injury that needs some final determination on what's going to happen, that's how that happens. I care is the overseeing body. And remember, I said I pay insurance premiums for just for my small business, for workers' comp. So there's an overseeing state arm known as ICARE in the state of New South Wales that will have different names depending on what state you're in. And they then provide licensing to AML and GIO and Alliance and some other insurers to actually administer and collect the funds and do stuff with the scheme. And finally, in the state of New South Wales, I'm less clear on this particular aspect for all the other states. There's a thing called WIRO, which has recently been renamed to IRO, which is the Independent Review Office. And it's like an ombudsman. If there's a bit of a barney going on here and everyone's having problems agreeing and you think that something very untoward is taking place, for instance, a person might not be getting the right pay rate or something, then the worker can talk to WIRO. And in fact, uh, WIRO is also involved in funding legal personnel to help the worker if there's actually a serious legal case that needs answering. So I hope that's helpful for you to give you a bit of an overview of who's on the playing field. What I want to do now is just perhaps try to move this now into a case study. The initial case, basically a lady called Kate. You've known her for several years because she's the usual treating GP. Kate's a 33-year-old single mum with a four-year-old son, Mike. 
she's well and you care for her preventative health needs. Your secretary tells you that Kate's work phone, so she needs an urgent attention space. She slipped at work and injured her ankle. The work supervisor, a fellow called Ben, was rather gruff on the phone and, and said it was her own fault. And further, another person called Jeff, a work health and safety manager, is coming along to the appointment and wants to talk to you. Jeff and Kate arrive. It's clear that Kate's limping, has a pain point. Her boots are in place, and you know there's considerable pain, and she's having slipped on a diesel spill at work. Yeah, as a GP, I guess I'm feeling a bit uncomfortable about this, Craig. I mean, I'm no expert in this stuff, but I'm a bit worried about what the supervisor said, and I'm a little bit nervous about Jeff coming along. Should I be concerned by these aspects of the consultation? Great question, Simon. And look, Simon, in many years gone by, I would equally be quite sort of put out by this and think, well, first of all, is Jeff think he is just demanding to come and talk to me? It's Kate's appointment, you know, bugger off Jeff, so to speak. Apart from which, this character Ben saying it was her own fault. So, you know, that seems pretty uncaring and unempathetic and I don't know what to make of that. Certainly in my, you know, 20 odd years ago, yeah, that would have put me on edge and uh, I'd be uncomfortable. I'm going to turn it around again. We don't know what Ben's motive was for making that comment. He may have just had a bad day. Sometimes people can just be gruff people. And it may be that Ben actually does care considerably about what's happened. And he's just blurted that out as that's part of his manner. So we don't actually know why Ben's been a bit gruff about it. You don't know. He, he may have things in his personal life that uh, causing pressure or whatever. So don't read too much in it. I feel I can keep my clinical independence and stand back and look at that and just hear it for what it is and just park it to one side as a, huh, well, I'll think about that and see how that plays out. And Jeff, our work health and safety manager, is coming to the booking. Now, for me, with a bit of experience and stuff, this is music to my ears. This is not threatening. This means that I have the opportunity to talk to Jeff, find out what we can do, find out what the limitations are at work, understand what the workplace looks like, and hopefully make sure that Kate gets well looked after. Because if you think back to the previous diagram, in many respects, we're all on the one team or we're aimed to be on the one team. So I don't necessarily think we're just here for bad reasons. That's kind of the way I would approach yeah. it. So don't be put out. So there was a question, why didn't you go straight to hospital for next year? But patients make their choices and sometimes bypass secondary care. Very often I will have work injuries actually sidestep the hospital unless it's very substantial, like there's clearly a broken bone or there's clearly a finger chopped off or whatever. So even things like foreign bodies in eyes and stuff like that will turn up on my doorstep and I can often manage those more rapidly than I can through, say, a public hospital system. As I do a reasonable amount of this stuff, I can get to the eye specialist secretary and say, look, we've got another one. Can you help us out and see this and expedite things? One of the things that employers dislike to do our patients is they get stuck in an emergency department for six, eight hours. And so that may mean that there's two or three employees in total are tied up for that time period. And then, unless it's a very substantial injury, a very sadly often uh, given sort of a pretty basic workers' comp certificate and some painkillers and thrown out the door. And I don't say that with any disrespect to our hospital team. It's just that for many things, it doesn't need the uh, full-on emergency department. Yeah. We do clearly have to treat and assess with consent and making sure she's happy that Jeff's there. But assuming normal history and examination of Kate's ankle... In the context of this workers' compensation type consultation, are there any specific additional questions you would ask? 
in the context of workers' compensation, there's some extra things that is worth knowing about. Just knowing a little bit about exactly what took place. Why was she in a place where there was a diesel spill? And there may be some fairly sensible story about I was taking some timesheets down to the uh, workshop and, and I slipped or whatever. So knowing a little bit about the injury, knowing also whether there's any prior injury to that limb can be very helpful to you. Just knowing whether there was a serious netball ankle injury in the past or whatever. This doesn't mean that a workers' compensation claim on this instance is invalid or something. It just puts you in a better place to be clear with people about things. And so you can turn around and say, yeah, I did know that she had a netball injury five years ago and actually needed a pin and plate on that side, but she had a well-functioning ankle after that. So anything that's not well-functioning is now part of the injury that's taken place. Don't necessarily feel threatened by that. The other thing is just knowing what the work is that's done. Very important because you want to know sort of what hours does Kate do? We have no idea at this stage. Does Kate work 60 hours a week or does Kate work four hours a week? We know that she's got a young son. How does that work out? So bring in what we know as GPs, as that biopsychosocial model. But just think about the work because our obligation as a nominating treated doctor is to assist our patient with two things, getting better and getting back to gainful employment. So if you don't know what employment is now, it makes it harder to plan how that will be put together. So hopefully that gives you some ideas to think about. We've got a bit more information and we know that she lives close to work. We know that we've taken Kate into the room on her own initially and she's indicated what took place and she's indicated that she sort of vaguely knows Jeff. She doesn't have any particular concerns about him and that she normally works eight hours a day, five days a week. I've also just had a little think about whether there was anything else injured, just as we normally would do in any sort of emergency department or trauma setting, you know, is it not just the section that is obviously injured, but is there anything above and below? And having that sense for, does Kate actually enjoy her work? It's always important because people who aren't enjoying their work, you often have a slightly harder pathway to tread with that. The basic treatment, all the things that we would normally think of in terms of treatment. But I just wonder, is there anything else that we need to think about? Look, thinking in that wider sphere of that biopsychosocial model and also in the work situation, if we're going to need a moon boot or crutches, that's going to create some issues. We haven't indicated which leg it is. So if it's our right leg and we've got an automatic car, even with the right leg injured, it may have impact for that. And Workers' Comp, for example, will actually organise or fund or sort something out to transport people to and from work if that's needed. A bit about the childcare situation. And I'm just concerned as a single mum, if this ankle was particularly severe, how cleaning and care and stuff at home is going to take place. Don't forget the workers' compensation certificate. All the certificates carry some form of consent on them. And just letting your patient know that what they're consenting to is to share information about their injury. I point out that unless your jurisdiction is particularly unusual, it does not automatically give the insurer or anyone else access to, I don't know, the history of genital herpes or that long-lost cousin that had some assault process or whatever. It's really focused in on the immediate events of the injury and if insurers or other people want more you are quite reasonable to say to them no if you don't want the entire file there's a lot of things if you're not covered by workers comp and I want you to get consent from the patient and then the insurance people back to do that.
they sometimes a little miffed about that, but once you explain to them what the story is, they usually are happy to comply. And very important, any sort of workers' comp situation, you want to keep following up and seeing where the process is going. Craig, I might just ask you a couple of quick questions from yeah. earlier. Is it the role of the GP to involve a rehab provider? And I guess the flow on from that is when. And is the rehab provider separate to the insurers? In terms of rehab provider, that can be appointed almost by anyone in the suit, if I may say that. So as a GP, if I was looking at this and let's just say that this is quite severe and we're going to need a moon boot and crutches and stuff and there's not much local support in terms of family, and so this is going to be very, very difficult for a single mum with a four-year-old. I will, on the spot, be issuing the referral to the rehab provider, and I'll be talking to Kate about that and getting her consent to issue that referral. And I will just write a referral like I will to a cardiologist or anyone else, saying, this lady's got a serious ankle injury. Here's what's happening. I'm concerned about these factors, about how we can get her back into the workplace, about support at home. In terms of funding for that, the rehab provider, if you give them as much information as you can, so who the contact person is at work, hence the lovely Jeff is right there to answer those questions. If you've got knowledge of who the right contact people are in the workplace, they can help steer the rehab provider to the insurer, but the rehab provider will need some sort of approval before they can actually physically get engaged. They might be able to make the phone call and talk to your patient and just get the basics that they'll need actual approval. Now, sometimes insurance companies and sometimes companies, particularly very large companies, may have existing relationships with a rehab provider. In the state of New South Wales, the patient always has the right to choose their treatment team. So they have the right to choose their GP and they also have a right to choose their physio. They have a right to choose their rehab provider. And so sometimes you may feel a need to invoke that. Other times, some of it's just experiencing and seeing how it goes. Sometimes a company's own rehab provider may actually be very good because they're very knowledgeable about how that company works and can sometimes do really wonderful things for your patients, but they're not always the enemy. And also, do we need to get approval for the x-ray? Because it's workers' comp, do we have to wait for that? In terms of the x-ray... A plain X-ray, again, it will depend a little bit on your legal jurisdiction, but in practice, most companies will usually pay for the X-ray on the spot for a basic X-ray like an ankle X-ray, and usually the system will accept responsibility for that. In other words, someone can claim that back, or Kate can pay for it and then claim it back when she submits her claim. So hopefully that answers those. Certainly more detailed films like a fancy MRI and stuff do need approval. Locally, the x-ray company, so if I issue a request for an MRI, locally the x-ray company or the company with the injured worker sort out that payment. And I don't usually have to go and get pre-approval, but on rare occasions I will deliberately. So remember, there's always two elements. There's the treatment and then there's what are we doing about work. And so I've had the opportunity to, to talk to Kate about a case and then bring Jeff in. So Kate has the right to some medical confidentiality, and particularly if it's not someone you know, in this case we know Kate, but perhaps it might be someone I don't know, it might be someone I've never met before. So I'll bring the injured person into the room, do the usual medical stuff, understand what's going on, and then bring the appropriate work health and safety person in. So we've had a bit of a chit-chat about that, and it's not a terrible ankle injury. 
So we're doing some of the basic things there. And sometimes people are worried, and especially amongst a registrar population, can get very worried about, oh, you know, what do I put? Do I put five kilos or do I put three kilos? A lot of this is just clinical judgment. Five kilos is not a very heavy load for a modestly sized woman. And so it's probably not going to affect the ankle a great deal. And it's probably reasonable. Whereas 10 kilos is probably not reasonable and requires you probably to crouch to pick it up and so on. And that's going to affect your ankle. So a lot of it's based on just some really basic clinical opinions. And I'm sure if you put us all in separate rooms and write down how much the load limit's going to be, it will all be a little bit different. Don't be too affected by that. And some things like parking close to the office and so on. Some of the things to think about when you're looking at this problem are things like, oh, is it humane? How much pain is there? Remembering that as the day wears on, that pain is going to affect your concentration. It's going to affect your, your mood and so on. So thinking about that. Hygiene is a really important one. And I can't stress this enough. Over the years, I've had many managers saying, oh, but we've got duties at work. But their dominant hand is severely injured or wrapped up or had a burn or something. You can't wipe your bottom. It's really tricky to wipe your bottom when your dominant hand is injured. I'm not a woman, but I'd imagine changing tampons and the like. It gets pretty tricky as well. So where there's a severe injury to a dominant hand, there's times where I just say for hygiene reasons, this person can only work from home or maybe even put them off work if the pain and so forth is severe. So having thought through some more things, we've then added a few extra things to think about. So work is really good for health and recovery and there's actually documents and guidelines that actually scientifically prove this. We want to think about where they are, can you usually get into the work environment and are there any other safety implications like are we using lots of opiates, in which case there may be some issues around driving and safety. And there was a question earlier, it was around psychological injury or perhaps physical injury in patients with pre-morbid mental health issues. How is this different to physical injury? And what should GPs and registrars in particular need to know about how to manage psychological injury? There's a few really key things here. So first of all, psychological injuries is a growing portion of the workers' compensation claim pie for all sorts of reasons, not to mention COVID. You need to just treat psychological injury just the same as anything else. It just needs a diagnosis. So use your diagnostic statistical manual and if you can make a diagnosis under that and you have good reason to think that it's attached to events within the workplace, then it may be that this is a psychological work cover injury. Now, there's some very, very key points to be aware of. First of all, the term stress will automatically be rejected because the Act says it cannot be accepted as stress. So if someone is stressed out of their mind, and I'm sure as GPs, we all have an image of that person that's coming to our room in tears, very upset, very uh, sort of chaotic and stuff, and it's very short-lived, it's very transient, but it is just straight out there stressed out about stuff. But unfortunately, on a work conversation, it's not acceptable. So you have to use DSM terminology, and sometimes things like adjustment disorder can be very helpful for that diagnosis. Work cover very importantly excludes some things. So it excludes in particular disciplinary type actions and restructure actions and normal decisions of a workplace. So Simon, if I were to turn to you and say, oh, gee, you know, a GP, Supervisor Association, it's restructuring and look, sorry, the only job we have left in this restructure is to take a major pay cut and only work two days a week. 
you may be very upset, you may be distressed by that, it may be seem quite unfair, but at the end of the day, companies make company decisions and that would not be considered a workers' compensation claim. It would be considered a normal event of work activities. So very important to just be aware of that. And I actually make a point of explaining this stuff to our patients when I think there is a legitimate work cover psychological injury, but you've got to pick your timing for that, not when they're incredibly distressed. I think one of the other things that's really, really important in our current society is people do have choices. Work cover is a very poor psychological vehicle for healing people and for solving workplace issues. It's not that it's bad, but it's got a lot of other wheels in it that the patient is forced to jump through and go with. If you listen carefully to your patient, if your patient's main concern is that some people in the workplace are driving the bananas and they don't really like that job anyway, they may be better off thinking about changing where they're working rather than trying in some way to use this as a justification for a work cover claim. And the bit down below, rarely will a work cover claim improve toxic relations cultures or personality conflicts. These need non-work cover solutions. That doesn't come from me. That comes from a wonderful barrister that I was doing a joint presentation with recently. And that was his own fairly independent view on things. And I fully support that. Thank you. A couple of questions. One is, do we need to do separate claims for physical and psychological injury if they're concurrent? If they're concurrent or they are flowing one from the other. So let's just say you've got an amputation, which then becomes also an element of depression. I would not expect you to need to have separate work cover certificates. If that was popping up, I think I would go to the claims manager and perhaps ask for the senior claims manager just to explain why they need that. There may be a reason behind it, but a lot of the time, if it's happened from one injury, like a major say motor vehicle accident and there's PTSD as well as, I don't know, a damaged right shoulder, that usually is is acceptable on one work cover certificate. Similarly, if there's secondary psychological, so someone's got a, a very severely damaged hand and as a result of pain and other things, they develop depression, then that would normally be allowed to be presented on a single work cover certificate. But if you're getting pushback or there's a problem, Again, communicating and finding out what the cause might be is the best way to go. Steering people away from psychological claims. I certainly have talked to patients about mm. the fact that you know, they're often very challenging and often maybe rejected and it seems very unfair to them when they have a work-related injury. Have you got a comment to make about that, Craig? That's, a, again, a common scenario and registrars may really struggle in that area. I fully agree. So please don't misunderstand any of the words that come after this. I fully agree. There's times where the work cover system can function quite poorly or seem to be quite unfair or arbitrary sometimes about how it thinks about a particular person. I think one of the key functions to think about is what is the wished outcome for the patient? Is the wished outcome to escape this manager that they really can't stand because they can't stand the person's attitude or whatever? And what is the injury event? So if there's a very substantial psychological injury because this person's been yelled at on repeated occasion and is now developing almost like a PTSD response, a Pavlov dog response to that, that's that's really quite concerning. But if the wished-for outcome of the patient is, I need to be free of this particular person, then 
sometimes it may actually function better to leave the work cover system to one side and chase EAP, chase a different employer, a different role, a different section. Now, I know that's not necessarily easy, but neither is the work cover system because it will constantly poke at this person to justify whether there is a psychological injury or not. And as I'm sure many GPs have, I've seen cases where you go, this is very, very significant depression and anxiety from this workplace situation. But it's then been deemed that because they had a history of anxiety and depression in the past, mm. it's a weakness of character rather than anything else. Yes. So I want to keep my patient out of trouble. But I think very importantly, the patient always has the right to put that claim through. I won't deny someone the ability to put the claim through because it's not me that has to determine liability. It's up to the work cover system, the insurer, to determine liability. So the patient is quite adamant that Bob's the problem and they want to make a work cover claim. I would not stand in their way, but I would tell them about how it all fits together. So I'm going to take it as rare that as doctors, we all have some skills around how to address things like an anxiety situation, a depression situation. Something that we don't often think as much about is that work situation. How would you return someone to work? And a little hierarchy is what I use in practice, in my brain every day. As human beings, we have different levels of functions. I think most of us, we don't even think twice about hopping out of bed. The alarm's gone off, hop out of bed, have a shower, clean my teeth, have some brekkie, maybe flick through the feeds on the phone and then off to work. So that just happens. I don't even give it a second thought. But if you're severely depressed or you've got PTSD or you've got other significant psychological injury, it may be that that's a huge challenge. Just getting out of bed's a huge challenge. It's like a bit of a hierarchy before you can think about someone being in employment, they need to actually make sure that they could at least do some of these things. So if you're looking to rehabilitate someone from a working viewpoint, you need to think about this. Now, you may have a fairly mild injury that's psychological, and perhaps they just need perhaps a lesser task in their employment, and they've got somewhere safe in their employment, and they've got someone they can talk to. And if, but if it's very severe, there may be no hope of employment unless you can move through this. And if it's very severe, it's quite difficult to move past. So it's just something to have in the back of your mind when you're thinking about returning to work. And if you've suddenly got someone saying to you, oh, well, 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 it's a bit anxious. Why can't they be at work? And you know that they're avoiding all social activities. They've cut off their friends. Some days they're not getting out of bed. They're probably not in a position to be in the workplace. So let's put this into a case. Essentially, there's been a bashing and unfortunately, Mr. Jones was a witness to this and this has all taken place quite some time back and he has a psychiatrist and it brings along a work cover certificate which just says unfit seeing psych and there's not much other details but he's very worried and stressed because his funds are about to be cut off and the pay is getting less than what it was. There's a few things to observe, first of all, in the case. So we're getting features that suggest things like post-traumatic stress disorder. So that's one of the things that goes through my mind. The second thing is it's not a new claim. It sounds like there is a claim number. It sounds like it's been an accepted thing. And you would imagine, given the severity of the situation, that it would be an accepted story. I am concerned why he's worried about his finances, that his wages will probably be going down a little bit because it doesn't stay at your pre-injury wages. It progressively goes down. And the other thing which I think is very important is 
We don't know anything about that day-to-day function. Where is he there? The first thing is don't panic. Don't panic. Hear the story. Work with this gentleman. Understand what's going on for him. Have that empathy, that stuff that we're really good at as GPs. Make that connection. Get that eye contact and understand what his situation is. I won't actually get someone like this, particularly if the psychiatrist has already got a history and a background. I won't make them retell the story. And I'll actually state that on the work cover certificate. So if I'm issuing a first certificate for my surgery, I'll say patient has PTSD and has well-documented features. I have not asked this patient to retell the injury event as this is damaging to the patient. And I would expect that I'll need probably about four sessions over sort of two or three weeks to assemble what's going on here. And my priorities will shift and change depending on the exact circumstance. So if I'm hearing suicidal thought and suicidal planning and stuff, that's going to really change what I do. So if I'm hearing, well, look, I'm in a stable relationship, I've got housing and, you know, my partner's earning an income, la, 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 and where there's a bit more support and stability going on. So I'm just going to treat it like anything else and work my way through it. And there'll be those key actions that we've been talking about, reasonable and necessary treatment and thinking about work. But in this gentleman, work's probably a long way away and maybe for the foreseeable future and never is a quite possible outcome. One of the other things you can do in work cover, which can be really helpful, is I might look for a case conference. I might try and get the psychiatrist, uh, patient and I on the phone all at once, or maybe even if there's a rehab provider involved, get them in as well to just try to understand where everyone's at and what we know and don't know. In amongst your examination and history, don't forget there's two things you want there. You want your usual sort of mental state observations that you do. You also want some of those words, like every time I hear the siren, I get distressed. That's worth putting in quotations and is very valuable to your record. The other thing you want is quantitate. It's some sort of quantitative measure. It just helps insurers, legal people. It helps the patient and hopefully helps you as well. So using a DAS scale, or in the case of PTSD, there's specific civilian post-traumatic stress disorder scales that you can use to grade and give a number to how severe it is. And be very cautious. The number doesn't tell us everything, but it just gives us some level of grading that it's not just about, I'm going to use inappropriate language here, but it's not just about airy-fairy things that are not tangible. And it gives it some additional tangibility to systems like insurers. So this is how I'll be approaching it. So looking at how he's spending his time, you know, we know he's not going to work. So what is he actually doing? And sadly, these people, when they're very injured like this, are spending their time looking at a screen often and it's just not going in, it's not going out, it's not going anywhere, but that's how they can pass the time or they're sleeping or they're smoking or they're drinking or whatever. So understanding that and looking to set a new pathway and a new agenda. So what I'll be doing is looking to, if this gentleman's right down the ADL end of the scale, I'll be looking to try to grab him and bear hug him and get him on board that, hey, buddy, you know, it's not good when it's 12 o'clock at lunchtime and you're still in your jammies because you haven't had a shower. It's not a great outcome. How about we try and get a shower in there each morning? What do you think? And I'll work with them to try to find something we can initiate. And, of course, that's not denying that you still need to address the psychology with a food psychologist and a psychiatrist and looking at medication. 
while I'm on the medication there, they can, if there's a well-established workers' comp situation, the insurer can be asked politely. They don't absolutely have to, but many of them will oblige to have a pharmacy account so that if this gentleman was getting, he may be getting Seroquel and he may be getting a range of other medications, which could be expensive, the pharmacies can just directly bill that to the insurance company once the necessary paperwork's in place at those things. Always have a crisis plan. You know, many of us are using software. I have an autofill in my software that I actually just type crisis and that just drops in the state and lifeline help numbers. And I've got a few extras if there's domestic violence and stuff. And using that idea of getting the words, the siren makes me feel terrible. And the feelings that are attached to it, when you say terrible, what happens? I burst into tears or I just get anxious and it just puts me off for the rest of the day. And that numerical, that PTSD score. I think it's just as final tips to people. Communicate, communicate, communicate. That's where the power is to help your patients in a situation. So if there's something that seems wrong or the case manager's saying they won't approve that, talk to them, just find out why. And then you may have grounds to question that or, or appeal that or write to them and say, look, I don't agree and here's why. Don't be the backyard lawyer. You don't get to determine liability yet. The act, at least in New South Wales, says that that's the role of the insurer. And if the patient doesn't like what the insurer has determined, then WIRO will help fund a lawyer to mount a case to have it reviewed. And so what my job is as the doctor is if I see something that I think is wrong, is saying to them, look, I'm not sure that that fits really well. And I know you're upset about that. But there's not a lot we can do about it. But I do want you to get some legal advice to just make sure everything's in order. And if something seems dumb or wrong, just talk to people and get some help. Understand that the process has checks and balances. And whatever you do, there's a bit of a habit as clinicians, and I've even had specialists do it, sort of blaming or getting in the cranky box with the insurer. Sure, insurers sometimes make less than fantastic decisions, or at least they appear to us as less than fantastic. But don't forget their skill and process is that they've got to follow the Act. So they may be just doing what they're compelled to do, and all you can do is appeal to their good nature and try to understand what it is. At the end of the day, if it's a bit of a mess and it's a bit of an argument, it needs the legal teams to sort that out. And the work cover system is a machine. It's just got to have an outcome. Your job is not necessarily to back a particular side of the machine. It's to try to help your patient understand, hold their hand and navigate as best you can through it. There's a few questions. Is there a proper time frame when to refer to a specialist? If your patient needs it, I would recommend doing it earlier rather than later because the work cover system, as the days tick on, your opportunity for return to work and the cost to everyone, including the employer and your worker, increase. So if I think I've got something that's a bit concerning that needs a hand specialist, I'll write the referral today. All right. Are there any supports for patients with non-workplace duties that they can't attend while they're incapacitated due to a work injury? Maybe even home duties that they're, you know, they've done their back at work, who can't, um, yes. you know, can't cook. Is there any support for that? Absolutely, Simon. So there's two elements to that, answering that. One is, is if they need support for doing things, like, for example, they've got serious shoulder problems so they can't hang their washing and they don't have the option of a dryer, then again, getting involvement of a rehabilitation provider who can do a home assessment 
and then perhaps determine that, you know, maybe they need a dryer mounted up on the wall or getting someone in to actually do that task for them or to scrub the bathroom wall or whatever. So that's one option. The other thing which comes up very often, and I find this particularly in the very much blue-collar manufacturing industry, is we saw Bob mowing his lawn on the weekend and he's got a dodgy back. Whatever's on the work cover certificate, the patient's meant to comply with that within reasonable reason. So it doesn't matter whether they're at work or at home. I will, on occasions, deliberately state non-work things. So I might actually deliberately state, I have encouraged Mr. Jones to return to golf, but only to do nine holes. I may do that where I want him to be out and doing that activity for psychosocial reasons, as well as to get the fistus back into his back and so on. Two sort of questions in one, and I think that they're sort of related. This was a case, really, of a worker who was injured, came to see their GP without a claim number, didn't give the doctor the claim number because the employer didn't want to use workers' compensation insurance. What does the GP need to do in that situation? And I guess the flip side of that is if somebody injures themselves at work, are we obliged to, if the patient says, oh, look, I'd rather just sort of, can you just do it and not start compo, you know, what's our position there? My understanding of this is that patient is in control. So the patient has the right to attend and say, look, I did this at work, and they've got a right to say, look, I don't want to make this a compo issue, in which case your billing fees and so forth at the front desk, are whatever your normal GP fees are. I will often inquire, like, sort of just why. At the end of employers can at times get penalised if they have injury claims. Those penalties are somewhat obscure sometimes to doctors. So it may actually mean that some large contract that they're tendering for, let's just say I make bolts and suddenly I've got a contract to build all the bolts on the Harbour Bridge, that contract unfortunately may have a clause in it which says if there's a serious work cover claim, Whilst I'm making those bolts, you know, all bets are off and I won't get my bonus. So there's often lots of other agendas there and just exploring that. But at the end of the day, it's the patient control. Okay. Are patients obliged to attend medical appointments in their own time rather than in work time? Yes, it's a complete nightmare, isn't it, is the bottom line. Many employers will take that view, and I believe in many instances it's supported in their enterprise agreements. It's something I certainly struggle with, and I draw attention to it on the work cover certificate. So if the person's returned, let's say they've gone back to their full 40 hours a week, it's going to be very hard for them to get to me, and I draw attention to that on the certificate and draw attention to things like the physio as well in the hope, I can't force it, but in the hope that the employer and insurer will come to some sort of agreement how it's going to work. I find that insurer case manager often attends the consultation or the case conferences by phone. Is this okay? Look, so long as the patient gives consent and as long as you're the treating doctor, don't feel that somehow or other the insurer is having a particularly negative impact on the process. It may be really beneficial to do that. It just depends on the circumstances. Good. The patient who's maybe still on a work cover claim 12 months, maybe after, maybe with Kate, you know, she's doing well, she's back at work, but she just likes to go to the physio here and there to keep her ankle sort of mobile and stuff. And, you know, the registrar goes, what do I do? You know, is that legit? We get caught with that from time to time. Sometimes people get quite attached to their therapy or therapist or whatever. 
it comes back to being reasonable and necessary treatment. treatment. And mm-hmm. I would imagine the most soft tissue injuries of the ankle, ongoing physiotherapy is probably not warranted. It may be a slightly different story, though, if there was some massive collapse of the tailor joints and so on, there may be a slightly different discussion there. But in a standard situation, if you wouldn't be doing it because of your football injury or your soccer injury, you probably shouldn't be doing it for the work of comp injury. One of the things I have said to registrars in training, Craig, and this is around imaging and investigations, but I think you've also just made reference to management, is that, and I say this tongue-in-cheek, but work cover patients don't have different collagen to non-work cover patients, as in if they injure their shoulder, they're just as likely to have the same type of injury as anyone who injured their shoulder with the same injury outside of work. That's really around managing people the same and trying to take that same approach and not letting the system dictate things. And we know we image people and investigate them soon. You've talked about early specialist referral. I think those things are contextual, but the message from this patient has this injury, as you talked about the psychological ones, and this is how one would manage it, best practice, and I have to work within the system, but that's the way I do it. I think that's good advice, Simon. I would very much support that. The only little tweak I would give is look, stuff like imaging and that referral for specialists. I do that in a, just a slightly different way in the work cover system to what I perhaps do for my GP patients. So if I'm, uh, let's just say we've got a, a problematic back injury or four weeks down the track and it's really just not getting anywhere with the physios, I will very often say, all right, look, here's the request form for the MRI. If you get towards the end of the next fortnight when you're coming to see me, I want you to get this booked and get it underway. So I'm always thinking ahead about if we're going progressing forward nicely, that's great, no dramas. But if we're not progressing, I'm always on the front foot as to what's our next step. And I'm going to finish with a challenging one. A patient that I've recently inherited that has an existing psychological claim with a previous employer but hasn't informed his current employer his case is now flared again and he needs time off is he likely to get in trouble from the new employer for not disclosing i don't know that i can reliably give you an answer to that i think that will be a matter of legal opinion if they've filled in paperwork that says oh no i've got no existing workers comp claims and there's nothing wrong with me and stuff which they may well have done if the original event had well and truly settled. There may be an argument about how that wording is and whether they've been completely transparent. If you're not reasonably transparent in your sign-on and employment, that can sometimes count against you, not so much in work cover, but under industrial relations requirements. Thank you. And I don't think I can really ignore two separate injuries at the same workplace should have two separate claims. Unfortunately, that's usually the way it plays out. So if someone's got a hand injury and then they've got a shoulder injury but they've happened on separate occasions and both are still in play, yes, unfortunately, the insurer will want you to have separate certificates. The flip side of that, to try to make the poor doctor that's trying to manage that feel a little more happy with life because it is tricky when they've got two injuries, is you, you can bill for both. So you'll be billing 
for the assessment of the hand and then be billing for the assessment of the shoulder. And so please, if you're stuck with a situation like that, please talk to with your secretaries about how they get booked in and how you bill for it because otherwise you'll get rushed off your feet and feel really stressed when hopefully you don't need to. Craig, thank you so very much. That's been great. Thank you. Great. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. We'd love your feedback. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please give us a rating and or a review. And if you haven't already, please subscribe and share this podcast with your colleagues. If you'd like to ask a question or suggest a topic, you can reach out to us via our social channels. Simply search GP Supervisors Australia on Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram or Twitter. GP Supervisors Australia is supported by funding from the Australian Government under the Australian General Practice Training Programme.